Good morning, everyone. My name is Peter. I'm one of the pastors here, and I get to preach every now and then, but honestly, it's, it's been a long while for me to, to come and preach. Um, so during the summer, and specifically the Second Timothy series, we've um, been sharing the pulpit a little bit amongst the elders that we have here at Hiawatha, and actually, we're in the midst of a really cool run here of six different preachers in a row, which is which is really, really great, honestly, um, to give our main preachers, Chris and Spencer, a little bit of a break and some flexibility during the summer. But, um, but also, there's a, there's a method to that as well. We want to be a church at Hiawatha that um, doesn't gather around just a singular personality or a singular voice or a singular presence like, like a person, but instead one that gathers around the gospel. And so it, it helps to hear the gospel in different inflections and in different voices and with different faces um, so that it doesn't become just a singular uh, personality kind of an organization. Um, our elder team has a mix of vocational pastors and non-vocational pastors on it. So last week you heard Caleb. He's one of our non-vocational pastors. I'm in between. So I'm a, I'm a part-time pastor here. Uh, I'm the worship pastor, so I am usually standing right here doing the music with the band. Um, but I also have a full-time day job during the week. I'm a lab director um, doing quality control lab stuff at a personal care product company. Um, if you're curious about what that is, talk to me after. Um, but, uh, but I do that during the week and then, uh, and then plan and lead the music most Sundays as well. Uh, I'm married to Becky. She's the office manager here. That's a part-time role for her as well. And we have two boys, Elliot and Zachary. Both of them are middle schoolers. So that's, that's a little bit about me. I had um, the year of... What's, what's this year? I had 2022 uh, as a sabbatical year from being, a, being on the elder team, which is part of why I haven't preached in a while. Um, it was a really great time of rest. But I'm super excited to come back up and, uh, and stand in the middle of the stage instead of the side. Um, I all, when I do this, though, I feel like I need to be holding a guitar. So that's, <laughs> if I do this every now and then, that's probably why. I feel like I'm missing something. Um, before we get into today's text in our sermon series from 2 Timothy, I want to give a little bit of historical context to what's going on in the world as this book is being written. So this is a, this is a letter. It's one of these pastoral letters that Paul wrote, and he's writing it in like the 60s, not the 1960s, but the 60s, the 0060s. Um, and during this time in the first century, things are starting to change for the Christians who live in the Roman Empire, which is where... Paul is. Um, Rome is one of these interesting empires in the history of the world. If you've taken like Western Civ or something in college, maybe you know this, but they, they, as they, you know, expanded their territory, would sometimes just march into a region and say, hi, we own this spot now. If you want to fight us, you'll lose. So just let us, let us own you guys and collect taxes, and we won't really make you change too terribly much. And most countries were like, sounds great to us, don't kill us, and we're fine. And that's what happened to, to the nation of Israel. Rome just kind of came in and said, you guys don't even have really an army, so we, we run the place now. If you want to continue worshiping your Jewish God, that's kind of okay with us as long as it doesn't make trouble in, in the you know, civil sense for us. Um, their goal is no trouble. Operate an empire with no uprisings, that's the goal. And if they, if they need to give a little bit of leash to, to religious operations, they're sort of okay with that. If you've ever heard the phrase Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, that's the goal here. They want peace. And that's why when you read the story of Jesus, when, when, they, when they bring trumped up charges against Jesus, they say he's stirring up the people because that gets Rome's attention. If they say he's starting a new cult, then Rome's like, I don't really care. 
I just don't, as long as it doesn't make trouble, okay? So here's Paul now, after Jesus, he's been preaching all over the Roman world, he's been getting resistance from some of the people listening to him here and there in villages, specifically from Jewish people, but the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people are really interested, and Rome has sort of been letting this operation happen. But now, Paul's been put in prison, it's actually the second time he's been put in prison by Rome, because they're starting to sort of worry about it. The, the movement of Christianity is getting a little more traction, and they're starting to worry that maybe this is going to lead to something. Especially because, you know, people from the top to the bottom of the social hierarchy are getting involved in Christianity. That is something that Rome gets a little worried about. So Paul's in prison. He's in a nondescript cell somewhere in the sprawling city of Rome. He's probably not even sure where he is. Um, most of his pr friends probably don't know where he is. It's like a Roman black site somewhere. They've got little prisons all over the place probably. Um, and he's probably not getting many, if any, visitors either because people just don't know where he is. No visitors, no supporters. He's alone. And he's writing to Timothy and writing and saying, Essentially, like, this might be it for me. Here, here's some advice to you as sort of the next generation of preachers in the, in the Roman Empire. So that's kind of some of the context here. To many Christians at this time, it probably felt like the movement and the faith is faltering. It probably felt like we had a good run, but things are starting to fall apart. Some of our main guys are, are no longer around. And persecution is starting to ramp up empire-wide. This is going to reach a boiling point. Right now, as Paul's writing us, the emperor is Nero. Maybe you've heard of him. Um, Nero is going to really kick off or, you know, organized persecution against the church. Paul, um, soon after writing this book, this is the last letter in the Bible that we have of his that he wrote before he's, he's killed. He's going to be executed by Nero fairly soon after writing this book. Um, the apostle Peter, he's going to be executed as well by Rome shortly around, around this time, within the next few years. Um, and then... Christians in general are going to be heavily persecuted starting now and really going for the next almost, you know, almost 300 years until, until the 4th century when things lighten up a little bit. Um, being a Christian is dangerous right now. And to a, to a normal Christian, seeing like, wow, Paul, Paul got killed, guys. Peter got killed, guys. In fact, all the 11 uh, of Jesus' remaining disciples uh, get executed. Only, only John dies of old age. If people are centralizing a personality versus the gospel, this is a bad time for them because they're probably going to walk away or at least think about it. They might be, Paul's my guy. I only ever listen to Paul. And if he gets killed, I just really don't know what I'm doing anymore. Okay? So Paul is writing to Timothy and saying, don't be ashamed of me because me as a central figure is in chains in prison. Um, don't be ashamed of the gospel. Carry on. Be strong. You heard some of this last week as Caleb preached. Um, but probably a lot of people are thinking Paul's a failure and this is all, it's all coming apart, okay? And many Christians are, or supposed Christians are probably just walking away because it's getting really hard. So I'm calling this, this sermon today Deserted and Found. And it's from 2 Timothy 1, 15 through 18. And the happy coincidence, that, that lost and found table over there is now a deserted and found table. So if you want anything over there, you can just take it because it's not lost. People don't want it anymore. But I didn't, I didn't name it because of the table. That's just, it just happened that way. But take a look afterwards. All right, so our passage is uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1. Um, I have the, the words of this passage on the screen. You can also grab your Bibles or your phones or whatever you like. Um, and we're going to read these verses. 2 Timothy 1, starting in 15. 
Paul writes, You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Phagellus and Hermogenes. May the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. You know very well in how many ways he helped me in Ephesus. And that's, that's it? Yeah, that's it. That's the whole passage. These are the only verses we're looking at. So kind of a, kind of a strange little in-between passage here. Uh, only four verses. And we've got some first century names here, so just let me get it out of the way. Phagellus, Hermogenes, and Onesiphorus. If you're expecting a boy, feel free to write these down. Great, great options. Um, just for the sake of time, I'm going to start calling Phagellus Phi. And Hermogenes, should we, just, should we go with Hermy? No, 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 that's the guy from, that's the elf from Rudolph. We'll go with Herm, like Herm Edwards. So Phi and Herm, and then you got this guy Onesiphorus. Uh, it's pronounced Onesiphorus. It's not onesie for us. It looks like it could be <laughs> onesie for us, but it's Onesiphorus. All right. These names, it's amazing. So, okay, where do we take this? Where do we take this passage? Where, where can we find the gospel in a passage like this um, that kind of just has these two, two different examples of things that Paul is experiencing in his life? Well, I'm going to organize this as we sometimes do with passages like these and talk about it in a couple different sides of a coin. There's a human side to this. What, what can we learn as people, as Christians, as believers uh, from what's going on here? And then there's a divine side of this. How does this show us who God is? Um, so we're going we're gonna to split it up that way. So we're going to start by talking about the human side of this passage. And I'm going to use this first verse to talk about that. So we just read it. You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Phi and Herm, both of them. Okay? And this, is, this part is kind of about Paul. What's Paul dealing with at this point in time? Things are getting difficult for Paul, like I mentioned before, the historical context, right? As he's writing to Timothy here, he's bringing up two specific friends that Timothy is going to know on a first-name basis, because he doesn't qualify this by saying, oh, Phi is this guy with it, you know. No, he's like, it's Phi and Herm. You know these guys. They deserted me. They're gone. And moreover, Paul says, everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me. That's not technically true, right? Because Timothy is in Ephesus, which is in the province of Asia. So it's not literally everyone, but Paul is exaggerating here a little bit, and it's the type of exaggeration that um, is really common when someone is experiencing depression. When you're in a depression, you may find yourself thinking or saying things like, everything in my life has gone wrong. Everyone hates me. And it's like, well, not, probably not literally every single thing in your life has gone wrong, or literally everyone in your life hates you. But this is how Paul is feeling right now, deeply depressed and alone in his prison cell. And at the end of 2 Timothy, Paul puts another name out there, um, Demas. He says Demas abandoned Paul and, and other people are leaving. Like it's, it's just, this is what is going on in his life. And at the end of the book too, he says, at my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me, everyone. May it not be held against them. But Paul is saying, look, it feels like I'm utterly alone now in the world. And I mean, this is a guy who's preached the gospel to Thousands of people throughout the Roman world. Thousands and thousands of people. He's helped plant churches that are, that are doing well. He has so many people that he's connected with across the known world at the time. Imagine how it has to feel to Paul to sort of be brought into court and look for character witnesses and there's nobody. Nobody has shown up at all. 
that's, that's, that's dark, right? It's a dark place to find yourself. Um, this is very similar to what Jesus experienced. If you know, um, Jesus, when he was arrested, everyone left him as well. In Matthew 26, we read, In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd who's coming to arrest him at night, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching and you, you didn't arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. And then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Very similar. We're seeing heavy parallels here between the life of Jesus and the life of Paul. At their hour of need, towards the end, everybody leaves and they are alone. For those followers, there's kind of a mentality that you can read in between the lines of, wow, uh, this is not fun anymore. <laughs> the disciples in the garden are like, you know, I'm kind of expecting Jesus to become the most important person in, in the world. And in the middle of the night, he's getting arrested with swords and clubs. And the disciples have to be like, uh, I did not sign up for this. I expected something else. This is not fun anymore. And I think I'm just going to leave. And maybe that's what's going on with, with Phi and Herm as well, is this is not fun anymore for me to be associated with Paul because Paul is about to be beheaded by the Roman Empire. So, I mean, seriously, why? Why is Paul's life so hard? Why? Paul is the most important Christian figure in the world at this time. Why is his life so hard all the time? Why does a loving God let hard things like this happen to a guy like Paul, why does he let it happen to other Christians in the first century who are being persecuted and martyred and fed to lions in this time, right? Or why does God, who's a loving God, let hard things happen to us today in the 21st century? I'm sure many of you have asked that question. I have. And often Christians are confronted with this question, and many people who wrestle with it just decide, well, if, if it's going to be hard Christ, being a Christian, why do I even do it? Maybe I should walk away. Maybe I should just move on with my life and not think about that anymore. Or maybe there are people who say, you know, I thought becoming Christian was supposed to result in only good days. I thought becoming Christian was supposed to get me perfect health and lots of wealth and worldly success. Isn't that the whole point? Isn't Christianity supposed to just be improving my life? Isn't that why we do it? Isn't that why we come here on Sundays? And I'm going to tell you, it's no. <laughs> that is not the point. That is not the point of Christianity. The church is not a gym <laughs> where you come and work out so that you look better when you leave. The church is not like a university where you come and you learn things so you can have worldly success and get a better job. That's not the reason that the church exists. The church exists to preach the gospel and to save people. But it doesn't mean that our lives are going to be perfect and wonderful in a worldly sense the rest of our lives after we believe. Not at all. So why? <laughs> why is that the case? Why does God set it up that way? Why does he allow that? And I think there's two reasons that I want to talk about here briefly. Number one is, well, we have enemies who seek to destroy us in our faith. We have spiritual enemies. They want to make our lives hard. They want us to walk away from the faith. They want us to question everything and then throw it away, derail us, turn us away from Christ and turn us towards other things or ourselves and start thinking that worldly success is the most important thing so that we give up when things get hard. That's what the enemy wants to do to us. 
And Paul knows this. In, in Ephesians 6, he writes about this and, and says, you know, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against the people around us. Our struggle is against these spiritual authorities who want us to die, who want us to have our faith torn down. So Paul knows this. This is true. So this is something that we need to be aware of as Christians as well. But I think that, that being said, which is very true, there's another reason that, that is maybe even more um, applicable to your life today, and that is this reality. Suffering is often the mode by which God is best glorified. Suffering is often the mode by which God is best glorified. Think about that. When you read the Bible, and you read stories of people in the Bible, most of the stories of God's people involve a lot of suffering. We read it all over the place, Old and New Testament. Paul's life these latter days of the 11 remaining disciples after Judas fell away were very hard, violent deaths. And the cross itself bears witness to this better than anything else because the God of the universe was tortured and executed and it was the best thing that could have happened for us, humanity. Suffering is often the mode by which God is best glorified. And that fact, the fact of the cross of Jesus Sacrificial death for us on the cross is often the stumbling block for people when they consider becoming a Christian, coming to faith. They say, I, just, I don't like the bloodiness of the cross. I don't like the suffering part about Jesus. I like all the teaching. I just don't like all that, the suffering and the, and the cross stuff. But make no mistake, there is no removing the cross from Christianity. That is the core of the faith. If you take that away, it's not Christianity anymore. So the Bible calls the cross a stumbling block that needs to stay there. And here's the good news about that. Genesis 50, this is, a, this is from the end of a story about Joseph, whose brothers tried to kill him and abandon him in a pit, and, and ultimately he you know, went through a whole bunch of suffering, but eventually became like the vice pharaoh in Egypt, essentially, and saved his family. Joseph says this when he sees his brothers again. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done. What? The saving of many lives. This applies to Jesus on the cross as well. Joseph was a picture of Jesus beforehand, and Jesus says to Satan and spiritual enemies, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish the saving of many lives, many of whom are sitting in this room today at Hiawatha Church. That should be encouraging to us, that though suffering is the mode God is glorified and we are saved through the suffering of Christ. God doesn't waste suffering. So that's what Paul knows, and that's why he's encouraging Timothy to stick it out, to, to guard that good deposit we heard last week, and not be ashamed, and soldier on, and continue to believe, though it is difficult. But what about the other guys? What about Phi and Herm? Well, <sighs> Understanding maybe what's going on with them, might, it might be helpful to look at the parable of the soils, which Dan actually referenced just a second ago when he was praying. I'm going to read this so that we understand, in case you've never heard this before. Jesus told a story called a parable about soils, and it helps us to sort of get at what's probably going on with, with Fi and Herm. So Matthew 13, starting in verse 3, says, Then he, Jesus, told them many things in parables, saying, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly 
because the soil was shallow, but when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop, 160 or 30 times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. And before I read the second half, in between here, the disciples pull Jesus aside and like, we don't have ears. <laughs> we can't hear it. We don't understand it. Can you help us to hear? Because I feel like we don't get it at all. And Jesus doesn't always do this, but in this case, he's like, sure, let me interpret it for you. Let me speak plainly what, exactly what this parable means. So here's what he said. Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy, but since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. So, first of all, when you read this parable, if you're a gardener, you may think, don't waste your precious seed by throwing it on the sidewalk. That's just a total waste of money. <laughs> if you, you know, my, my wife is the gardener. She's a really good gardener. I will sometimes do grass seed. I'm not even that good at it. But I don't throw grass seed on the sidewalk. That stuff's expensive. Put it where it's supposed to go, right? But one of the things you can take away from this passage is that God scatters the word all over. He's not stingy. He scatters it everywhere. He even scatters it to people like Phi and Herm. And Phi and Herm are probably more like rocky ground or thorny soils. The name Phagellus means fugitive. So it's interesting that he runs away uh, from Paul at some point. Um, the thorny soil or the rocky ground really seems like it refers well to these guys, right? Springs up quickly, seems to have a lot of faith. Trouble and persecution come, and the, the faith just dies. There's no root there because they're relying on something else. That type of faith deserts us in desperate times because there's no real root. So when we're beaten down, when we're needy, when our pride is gone, when our health is gone, our superficial friends may leave us, our jobs may disappear, Paul's in that place right now, looking out and being like, where, where are you guys? Well, those types of people are placing their faith in something that's not the word, that's not the kingdom. And when things get hard, they, they leave it because they've put their faith in other things. They're bereft of hope when things get difficult. That's Phi and Herm deciding to leave, abandoning Paul and saying, I didn't sign up for this. They don't have that deep, rich soil like a guy like Onesphorus seems to have. That's some of that context there. Now, if you're like me and you hear this parable of the, of the seeds and the soil, uh, you probably are thinking, oh boy, that's pretty scary stuff. I think I need to really focus on having a lot of faith because I don't want to be that shallow ground. I want to be the rich soil. I got I to gotta, I gotta focus so much on having so much faith. I got to be so, I got to work at it so hard. And I, I, I got to make sure I have enough, right? I need to have enough faith. Well, if, if you're feeling that, let me just 
tell you something kind of as a sidebar from this passage. A large amount of faith in the wrong thing is a complete waste of faith. That does not matter. Maybe Fi and Herm thought they had a ton of faith in this new world that they were building where they would be successful people. And then they weren't successful and they left. Well, their faith was meaningless. If I'm drowning and I have complete faith that someone throwing me a boat anchor is going to save me, I'm still going to die because the anchor is not going to save me. Even if I believed with my whole being that that anchor is going to save me, it's going to sink me to the bottom. That faith is meaningless because an anchor is not what I need. But the other side of that is a tiny amount of faith in the right thing is all you need, right? If I'm drowning and I'm barely even aware of what's going on, I'm ready to give up, and someone just puts my hands on a life ring, I will live. Because the life ring is what I need. Even if I don't even trust it, I don't even know it's there, I'm half dead already, a life ring will save me. The object of the faith is infinitely more important than how much faith you have. So don't get too caught up in the size of your faith and worrying about your soil. Worry about putting the object of your faith as Jesus and his work. Because the object of your faith is infinitely more important than how much you have of it. That's why the Bible talks about a mustard seed of faith is all you need to move mountains because it's in Jesus. I was reading commentaries on this passage and um, I was struck by Robert Yarbrough's quote on this and he says, Paul is also conscious that the working of divine grace impels the faithful to faithfulness until the end. Paul knows that divine grace impels the faithful people to be faithful until the end. Divine grace keeps on working. Divine grace keeps on saving. That's what we need to put our faith in, is that divine grace. Something that Phi and Herm are missing. Okay? So let's, let's move on then from the human side and start talking about divine grace and the divine side of this equation. Okay, let's read these verses about Onesiphorus one more time. Paul says, May the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. You know very well in how many ways he helped me in Ephesus. Onesiphorus is an awesome friend. Just a, what a guy, right? The name Onesiphorus means bringing advantage or beneficial. Again, God knows what he's doing, naming people. Um, so here's what Paul says about Onesiphorus. He traveled to Paul. Now, he's, he's from like the region of Ephesus, right? Because he says he helped me in Ephesus. Ephesus to Rome, that's like Turkey to Italy. That's a thousand miles in the first century. So Onesiphorus probably traveled like a thousand miles to get to Paul. So Paul was very grateful for that. Um, he refreshed Paul, it says. Maybe he brought some supplies and some food to Paul when, when no one else could, could do that. He wasn't ashamed of Paul in his sorry and weakened state. He, he searched all over and he found Paul. We talked about how difficult that is. Like just, here's Rome, find a single guy in a secret prison. But Onesiphorus did that. He searched all over and he found Paul, and he stayed loyal to Paul. He didn't abandon Paul like the other two guys. He stayed. He didn't abandon him. That's, a, that's an amazing friend, right? So when Paul says, everybody has abandoned me, here's, here's an example of someone who 
has not abandoned him. That's a great friend. Wouldn't it be great to have friends like that? And the good news of the divine side, as you probably guessed, is that Jesus is that greatest friend. Or to borrow that Tim Keller uh, ideal, he, he is the true and better Onesiphorus, right? Jesus, the greatest friend, the full embodiment of these kinds of things. Let's talk about Jesus. Jesus traveled to us. Not a thousand miles, infinity miles. Kids, infinity is greater than a thousand. Uh, infinity miles from heaven to earth, right? Oh, even further, to the grave. Heaven to the grave, to death, to hell for us. That's a great distance to travel. Way more than a thousand miles. Jesus refreshes us. When we're tired, when we're beaten down, when we're persecuted, weak, Jesus provides strength and rest and refreshment. He says, come all you weary and I will give you rest, right? So he, Onesiphorus could have shown up and found Paul in prison and said, you got to fight harder. You got to get, get up off the floor. Just because you're starving doesn't mean you, no, that's not what he says, right? And that's not what Jesus says either. He, he comes and refreshes us and says, I will give you rest. You can take my yoke, but it's easy. It's light. He says, I'm, I'm the living water. You drink from me, you'll never be thirsty again. That kind of refreshment, incredible. Jesus refreshes us. Jesus is not ashamed of us either. When we're weak and noncommittal or when we're asking difficult questions, really questioning our faith, that is okay. Jesus is not ashamed of us in those times. He still welcomes us. He still stays near us, still wants us, no matter what our state. Jesus searched hard for you. Jesus searches hard for us and finds us. The Bible calls him a good shepherd who, who has his 99 sheep in the pen and realizes one is gone and goes and looks for that one, right? He won't be denied. And he will find us. Just like Onesiphorus found Paul, Jesus will find us no matter where we are. When we're in prison, even when we actively hide from him. Think about Adam and Eve in the garden. When they sin, they hide from God and God finds them. He doesn't just like, fine, I don't, I don't care about them anymore. No, he goes and finds them. Or when we get locked up, when our sin and our addiction locks us away, makes us a slave, takes away our, our will to follow Christ because we're so addicted to our own sin, Jesus knows where we are. He knows what we're struggling with, and he is in the business of liberating spiritual prisoners and slaves. So he will search and find you even there. Jesus stays with us. He will not abandon us. He is faithful. Once Jesus saves us, we're his forever. He will not change his mind when we have a hard day and desert us then. When we feel like walking away from it, he's never walking away from us when we truly believe. He won't forget about us. He's faithful. He is that secure object of faith. Putting our faith in him saves us forever. And there's another twist to this here at the end as well, which is maybe a little bit subtle, but you can get it when you read this passage a little slowly. Here's what Paul writes about Onesiphorus. He says, May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. And he mentions mercy a couple different times. At the start of the passage, he says, May the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus. 
At the end, he says, I hope he will find mercy. And then at the very end of the book, again, dipping into chapter 4, he asks Timothy to greet the household of Onesiphorus. Why, why does he say the household of Onesiphorus at the end? And why at the beginning of this one he says, may the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus? Why not the guy himself? Well, a lot of commentators kind of think that Onesiphorus is, is dead at this point. That Paul is talking about his interactions with Onesiphorus when he was still with us, but he's now passed away, which is why he's saying, I, I may the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day, which is this picture of, you know, standing in heaven and being granted mercy. And when he says, grant, greet the household, it's because he's not there anymore, just, just his household is there. So th this could be the case. We don't know for sure. Um, some of the, you know, like Orthodox tradition that has um, writings about some of the early church fathers that aren't in the Bible, um, tradition says that he was executed, that he was executed uh, around this time and that he was executed between Rome and Ephesus. And if that is the case, then it seems like he made the thousand-mile journey, he took care of Paul, he headed for home, and somewhere along the way, he was caught and ultimately executed. So if that is the case, then, then Onesiphorus is no longer alive. And the way that Paul is writing to Timothy uh, is one of these posthumous commendations. May he find mercy when he stands before God in heaven. Again, like Onesiphorus, in a much truer and better way, Jesus made a perfect sacrifice. He died on the cross so that we can receive mercy. We, as the household, can receive mercy. Like I was saying before about the stumbling block of the cross, without Jesus' cross, there is no mercy for humanity. There is none. That is the core doctrine of our faith. Without his perfect sacrifice, there is no mercy for the sins that we, all of humanity, have committed. We cannot remove that stumbling block from people. That is the one that we must stand on. But he loved us enough to give us that mercy, to lay down his life and grant sinners like you and me the undeserved mercy of grace. That is Jesus willingly laying down his life and sharing mercy with people who didn't do that. First Peter chapter 1, Peter writes this about this idea. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given. He has given us mercy. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through, through what? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That is the only way that that happens. That is the only way that we get new birth. That is the only way that we get mercy is through Jesus' death and his resurrection for us. Mercy has been given at the cross. That's the good news of this divine side. That's what all of this is funneling down to. All of these stories about people walking away, people staying faithful. If we get caught up in just the human side of this, we can learn some things about being a good friend, about be being faithful. But if we miss the second dimension, that divine side of this, we're missing so much. The life of Onesiphorus is just a Polaroid of the glorious real scenery of the gospel itself. Be a good friend, what a great message to walk out of here with. You know what's better? Look at Jesus, the greatest friend ever, 
who has died for you to grant you mercy to be the firm object of your faith forever. And don't worry too much about when you mess up or when your life is hard. Worry about Jesus and his work for you on your behalf and how he gives you mercy freely forever. When we were singing that song, Drops of His Precious Blood, I was just thinking like, yeah, even a drop of Jesus' blood outweighs the ocean of all these other trappings that we tend to put our faith in. A single drop of Jesus' blood saves you and gives you mercy. That is how infinitely more important the object of your faith is than the size or the strength of the faith you think you have or don't have. It's about Jesus. So as we wrap up here, I just want to give you reminders, reiterate some of these things to you from, from 1 Timothy. This little section with some weird names in it, this is what we, can, what we can take, what we can be reminded of today. Life is hard. I know it is. But God is faithful, and he displays his power in our weakness, like he displayed his love and power on the cross as Jesus bled out, naked in the sun, as a warning to other people in the Roman Empire, he was saving you from your sins once and for all forever. Suffering is not wasted. So even though life is hard, we do not need to be shaken by that because God is sovereign over it and bringing good things out of suffering all over history. Second reminder, the object of faith matters more than the size of your faith. Believe that. Remember that. There's one object of faith that saves. It is the cross of Christ and the empty tomb alone. Putting a mustard seed size of faith in that is all you need. Putting your faith in yourself or in otherworldly things or success will be desertion and failure down the road. But faith in Jesus brings the opposite. Loyalty, love, forgiveness, and strength and refreshment. And lastly, just remember, Jesus is right now, in this very second, in this room, and wherever you are listening to this podcast later, Jesus is searching for you right now to save you. If you've already been a Christian for years, he's searching for you now to continue to save you, to continue working his divine grace in your heart, to refresh you, to give you mercy. He uses churches like Hiawatha Church to place his hands on you and give you his mercy because of the cross. This is what he does. He refreshes you. He finds you. He liberates you. He makes you free. And it was at great cost to himself at the cross, but he loves you that much. That's what I want to leave you with. He is searching for you right now. Allow him to find you and give you mercy. Allow this church or your church at home to be that picture of mercy to you and direct your gaze to the cross forever. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this message today. Thank you for these examples in the lives of real men who lived in the first century that you used to teach us not, not how to be, not just how to be, but who you are, the type of God that you are, the one who stands by us in suffering, the one who refreshes us, and ultimately the one who says, I got this. I am taking care of it for you. My death on the cross is sufficient to cover a multitude of sins. Even just drops of your blood are effective to save us. I pray that you would help all of us to put our faith in you alone, to make the object of our faith the cross of Christ, not ourselves, the cross of Christ, 
I pray that you would refresh us now in the ways that we need, that you would point us to yourself and Holy Spirit, that you would just wash over our hearts today. Help us to feel refreshed knowing that you are the one who orchestrates faith for us. You are the one who works your divine grace in our hearts and continues to make us faithful to the end when we believe. Praise in your name. Amen.